brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. I'm Ian Scotto, Jack Murphy in studio again. Here I am. If you uh, haven't listened to the last episode. <laughs> People liked the episode with Dad Derek. He was great. Yeah, yeah, he was really cool. I'd love to have him back on again, uh, especially if anything pops off on about military rotary wing aviation. It sounds like he spent a lot of time researching that stuff. Yeah, and he wrote two articles that we recently put on the site. Four. So mm-hmm. we had two the last I checked, and there might be two getting going yeah. up there. No, 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 I think all four of them are out now. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. A couple of different articles. Were two of them recent, or? I mean, they were all about aviation, um, you know, stuff kind of like on the periphery of the Extortion 17 crash. Uh, one was about um, mobile, uh, you know, offset infill stuff using uh landing helicopters and riding dirt bikes and quads off and things like that he wrote another one the myths and, and misconceptions around extortion 17 um yeah so there's four articles in total that that he shot my wife that we published on the website i was uh surprised there wasn't that much of a backlash from the episode like i, I did figure i'd get some tweets and emails saying that Latrell's story is 100% what happened. Cause I think there's a lot of people who are, I, I would say like emotionally invested in the book, the movie, they they really love the whole story. Yeah. And I didn't see a lot of that, which I mean was good. And, and I don't think he even made it clear on the show. His intent is not to like attack anyone. It's just to get the truth out there. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Ed said it himself. People are ready to hear the truth. Yeah. I agree. Um, they really enjoyed it. So this episode, we have Dan Crenshaw coming on, uh, running for Congress in the second district of Texas. Um, we have an email to get to. I was checking the emails at softrep.radio at softrep.com. You want to do that first and then get into this uh, dick pic six? Yeah, yeah, article. sure. Let's knock out the uh, the emails. And and that's an article that is getting a lot of controversy. <laughs> this is a, I thought this was a really interesting one, actually, because it's something you talk about on the show pretty often. Um, and it's from Trey. Uh, SoftRep first. I have enjoyed all of the content on SoftRep Radio and SoftRep.com. I am also deeply grateful that my comment on Jack's article about the acceptance and welcoming of communism in the U.S. became the featured comment. My, com- my question is, how do you define what an expert is, both when talking about those who write about specific military issues, but also in all areas? It's a thought I've wrestled with a lot as a college student. Thank you. And that's from Trey. That's a really good question, actually. Um, there's a lot of ways you could define an expert. Um, and, and I'm somebody, I think I've said in the past, I hesitate to call myself a counterterrorism expert because there's so many, quote-unquote, counterterrorism experts out there. And if you're an expert on a subject, you should be able to talk about 
everything there is on that subject, right? If we sat here and you started grilling me about the history of Palestinian nationalism, I would be able to tell you a little bit about it, but not a, a comprehensive view. But if you're a counterterrorism expert, shouldn't you know all of that? You know, when you when you really start to learn a lot about a subject, you learn how much there is that you don't know. Um, so, what is an expert? Is uh, is uh, someone who has like a PhD, a subject matter expert? Um, I don't know. I, I think you have to kind of look at it at like levels and have like a more granular view. Um, you know, somebody who was a colonel and served in, uh, let's say, Ramadi, Iraq. That guy might be a great subject matter expert on military operations in Ramadi, Iraq, the year he was there in 2005. But he might not be an expert on, say, uh, what what's going on in uh, the Korean Peninsula right now. So there's different ways to look at expertise. You know, just because you're a former Army Ranger or former CIA officer or former Navy SEAL doesn't mean you know everything about everything. That seems like actually Ed was talking about that on the last podcast. He's yeah. like, you, they try to find one source to speak on every single subject. Yes. But that's not how the modern world works. It's so complex. It's so technical that there's no one person that knows, say, everything about the Department of Defense. You know, I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert on like missile defense. You know, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I know a little bit. Sure. Uh, I probably know a little bit more than the average person, but I, I'm not an expert. How do you choose what you do write about then and, and what you comment on? Because I know for you, there's times you'll turn down an interview or something because yeah. you'll say, I don't really know this well, but at the same time, you speak on stuff that I'm sure you admittedly are not an expert on. Yeah. You'll go on CNN and talk about the presidential election while it was going on, and people could say, that's not your expertise. Yeah, you could. Well, I mean, again, it's a levels of expertise. Um, I would say, admittedly, not an expert on presidential elections, but I do have a degree in political science. Sure. Um, I do follow you know, politics, so I mean... I, I guess I have some level of expertise, but I'm not, uh, you know, subject matter expert. Um, I do turn down a lot of stuff. I mean, mo- mostly when I weigh in on presidential politics, I do it to um, as it relates to military affairs. Um, if you come and ask me personally, Jack Murphy, what's your yeah. opinion? I can give you opinions and rants all day. But <laughs> <laughs> but when I go on television or I write articles, I try to keep it within the, uh, you know, a certain venue um, like there are times, you know, you, you tried to have me on a few times, Ian, to talk about things like Ferguson um, or like social issues and things like that. Which Derek loves to talk about when he's been on and he's not an expert on it, but it's it's an interest. Uh, and, I, and I will I can talk about it. We can talk about it a little bit. I'm not like afraid of the subject, sure. but I don't think that I'm an expert in um law or domestic policy or, um, you know, practical law enforcement procedures or uh, civil rights movements. I don't, I don't think I know enough about those subjects to qualify as an expert on that topic. It's an interesting thing, though, because most of the people who you see on TV, uh, I would say, are, are not com- experts. Uh, I mean, yeah, a lot of them are complete fucking morons, frankly. I mean, you just get somebody who's like a pretty face, right? I mean, I'm sorry, it sounds like some misogynistic comment, but how many times do we just see some cute blonde on television who literally has no idea what she's talking about? Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is a cute blonde with an opinion. <laughs> but there are, there are men, too, of course, plenty yeah. of men on television who also have no fucking clue what they're talking about. Wayne Simmons was the Fox News like CIA go-to guy for years. Sure. And it turns out he's a stolen valor, had no fucking clue what he was talking about. It's it's one of those things where um, I think as long as p- people should just be educated on the fact that 
whether it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, like they're all in the business of getting ratings, yeah. making money for their advertisers. And to be honest, uh, I mean, I don't fault them for it. It's capitalism. Like they put that above getting out quality news. And also everything, if you turn on to any of those news stations more times than not, it's a debate on an issue before you even really know the substance of yeah, the issue. Yeah. Well, they're giving the consumer what they want. And, yeah. And, you know, they love split screen debate. People, people say, I want the truth. <laughs> I want the facts. No, they don't. Come on. Let's not lie to ourselves. People want to be entertained. They, they're addicted to outrage. They don't want like that dry, you know, fact based analysis. They don't, that's too complicated. Nobody wants to go through all that trouble. People want to be entertained. They want to get angry. They want to have passionate convictions. Um, so yeah, I mean, when people tell me they want facts and they want truth and all this, you, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt because nine times out of 10, that's not what they're looking for. I'm also, I'm trying to pull it up on here to make a, a point if I can. Um, the, I think I'm pulling it up right now. There we go. Um, so people also want to live in an echo chamber, I think, on yeah. social media. So Tim Kennedy actually recently tweeted like a few things about climate change, and he put up this video of, of him, and I'll read it. It says, heartbreaking reality of climate change. Where I am standing 10 years ago was covered in 10 feet of ice. This glacier was, uh, dis- was disappearing for the last 20 years, just like all other bodies of ice around the world. We have to act. All right, so he put that up. And then I, I saw on his Facebook, he wrote, like, I just lost hundreds of Twitter followers by voicing a view on climate yeah. change. And I think it's because Tim Kennedy generally appeals to a more conservative audience. He is very conservative on his views. Uh, but this was a some for some reason, that's considered a more liberal view. And I think yeah. if, if you don't hear if you don't want to hear exactly what your opinion is out there in the media, you're like, I, I don't want to hear this guy speak. Oh, yeah. Every time I say something uh, something negative about Trump, people flip out. I mean, they go crazy. It's like, are you really such a snowflake that you can't handle? It just recently happened. And then it also happens. A little, a little criti- I mean, he's president. Yeah. You know, the president's going to be criticized, you know? They also then ask, like, I didn't know you were, or say, I didn't know you were a liberal, Jack. I didn't which- know. You must be a liberal plant, Jack Murphy. <laughs> How much did George Soros pay you to write that? It's like, come on, guys, Uh, let's thicken our skin a little bit here. I mean, Donald Trump says a lot of ridiculous stuff, and I mean, he's going to be criticized for that. Um, It doesn't mean that he's like the, you know, uh, it it doesn't mean he's like, you know, Satan or something like this, or these like exaggerations that people make. Um, You know, Donald Trump is literally worse than Hitler. Like, no, okay, no, that's not true. But but the president is going to be criticized, and he's open to criticism, and people have the right to criticize the president. And I don't know why that's so controversial. I feel like a lot of people, and and we saw it during the Obama administration, of course, too, and and during the W administration, people just, like, drink the Kool-Aid, like, hardcore, and it's like you just become a fanboy or something, and you have some slavish obedience to... uh, a presidential administration. That's not really the America I know. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to probably do with the media. Like, they've really Stoking driven those this, flames. Yeah, yeah they, and they've driven this right-left paradigm. Choose, so that, choose a side and stick to it, pal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so when you tweet out something more conservative, people will be like, oh, I thought Jack Murphy was a liberal. And then you tweet out something critical of the president. I, are you a How little, can you do that? Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Whose side are you on? <laughs> um, 
Anyway, getting into something that you just wrote that was pretty controversial, Dick Pick 6. Uh, <laughs> That's not the full title. Of the yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. So the full title is Dick Pick 6, the 7th Special Forces Group Sex and Blackwell, Blackmail Network. I mean, rather than reading from the article itself, I might as well get into it with you. And, and is this uh, the full article for subscribers or is it behind? the? No, it's not behind the paywall. Anyone can go and read it. Um, you know, you type that article title uh, or something similar to it in a search engine and it should come right up um, and anyone can read it. Um, so, yeah, I worked on this story for a few months and uh, it was difficult uh, <laughs> to say the least. And um, I wish I could get into like some of the backstory and stuff like that behind how things work. But, um, you know, of course, there were sources I talked to that I have to protect at the same time. And uh, quite a few off-the-record conversations as well. Um, the gist of this story is that the group secretary at 7th Special Forces Group was quite promiscuous, uh, actively seeking out relationships with men in the unit. Um, so she slept with quite a few Green Berets, uh, sergeant majors and team sergeants and colonels, other officers, captains. Um, she got around quite a bit. And it, it caused kind of a, a mess, as you can think, you know, that if you have this sort of, you know, promiscuous sexual activity, you know, it, it happens in the corporate world too, right? But it, this is in a military environment, and uh, I have no interest in playing the morality police here by any means. Um, I think as we get a little deeper into the story, you'll see why this is newsworthy or why this is important, and it's not about affairs at the workplace. Um Things started to get more and more out of control. Um, you know, multiple guys, um, you know, sleeping with her at the same time. Um, she tried to break it off with one colonel, and uh, she was coming to work crying, actually, because he kept sending her unsolicited pictures of his genitalia. And uh, this guy, this officer, uh, his name's Dave Bowling, was so prolific that his own men, they nicknamed him Dick Pick Six. So six is the name, sure. it's a call sign of the colonel, you know, for people who haven't been in the military. And so dick pick six became his moniker. Um, and things just kind of spiraled downhill from there. Um, this secretary, Jennifer O'Brien, she was also uh, smoking crystal methamphetamine. Um, that started to come out. And when a new colonel came in, uh, Colonel Ball, he saw what was going on in his headquarters and was like, oh, my God, like, we got to do something about this. And, and Colonel Ball really tried to do the right thing and clean the situation up um, to try to take measures. Um, meanwhile, after Dave Bowling, the next guy who was with, actually there was some overlap between them, was uh, Jason Sartori. And Sartori came and he was sleeping with her. His wife allegedly found the electronic messages between him and the secretary and realized that he was having an affair. Um, some kind of altercation broke out and uh, Sartori was arrested for allegedly strangling his wife. Um, those charges were later dropped. Uh, Sartori then goes and he's with O'Brien and he, according to O'Brien, he physically abused her as well. And uh, there's pictures in the article of her bruised up and... Um, she would beat up, um, you know, pretty badly. And, um, you know, like I said, the charges were dropped, so there's no conviction there. And you can look at, you know, the evidence and make your own decision, I guess. I, I mean, I think she did suffer physical abuse. 
Um, does does he have a uh, he, alibi for it? He he vigorously denied that he physically abused either his wife or O'Brien. Um, so just for the record, you know, he, he uh, I talked to Sartori and he denied it. Um, so things continue to get worse and worse. The investigations are getting out of hand, or there there are. What was going on first was 7th Group was trying to initiate investigations into O'Brien and some of these other characters and what was going on here. And initially it was about the drug use, but then they were like, well, okay, this is also an opportunity to investigate her for all these affairs she's having with all of these different guys. And um, Special Forces Command kept shutting down the investigations. They they would go back to Colonel Ball and 7th Group and they would say, not only are we not going to help you, but you need to shut this investigation down and stop making waves. And there were officers and there were other people in seventh group at the time who were trying to do the right thing here. And they were looking at each other like, what the fuck? Like what's going on? Why is SF command at Fort Bragg trying to shut us down? And it didn't, so it didn't make any sense. So then uh, internally in seventh group, the investigation continues and Jen is eventually placed on administrative leave um, and she's getting her security clearance um, yanked. Jennifer O'Brien then starts writing up a hit list of all of the men that she has potential blackmail material on. She was working trying to use that material to get um, officers and senior uh, NCOs in the unit to try to help her out, help her get her job back. But when it became apparent she wasn't getting her job back at all, she made up this hit list and said she was going to take down the entire unit. Is like, okay, if you're firing me, I'm taking all of you down with me. So she starts working up this hit list um, and uh, starts releasing that in her information. And my understanding was there were text messages, there were emails, there were pictures, there were videos. I mean, she had like a nice size cachet of information that she was holding over people's heads. Um, then what happened, uh, this is a few months back, the investigation continues. It's gotten bigger. Um, it's out of the control of, you know, these colonels and sergeant majors. They can't control the information anymore. Um, was the command sergeant major of Special Forces Command, Brian Rary, was removed very quietly. And you can see there's like an Army Times article that was like total like whitewash with a very, you know, PC message from the uh, USASOC public affairs officer. Um and it turned out that, uh, you know, I found out it was actually part of that information that Jennifer O'Brien had. She also had leverage over the command sergeant major of Special Forces Command. And now it starts to make sense why Special Forces Command kept shutting down the investigation, why they didn't mm-hmm. want it to go forward. Um, so the article is about all of this, and it's about, you know, the good old boy network that kind of exists, the so-called, you know, the boys club that we've heard so much about in recent months as the Harvey Weinstein scandal has unfolded, that there's this, like, little clique of men who kind of facilitate and perpetuate this type of behavior, and that's definitely what happened at uh, 7th Special Forces Group and uh, at Special Forces Command. Interesting. So the article is now up. Dick Pick Six, the Seventh Special Forces Group, Sex and Blackmail Network. Um, before we bring on Dan, it's funny that you mentioned Harvey Weinstein because I know the pictures are out of Oprah Winfrey with Harvey Weinstein. There's that whole, uh, I don't know, just uh, big firestorm. I wouldn't say firestorm. I guess a uh, collective 
thing going on on Twitter and the media that Oprah Winfrey made a speech that people liked at the Golden Globes, and now she should be the president in 2020. Well, it's... And it's well, uh, actually, I saw Nick from Ranger Up tweeted out, and it was the exact same way I felt, is, you know, we're having a unqualified billionaire president to replace another unqualified billionaire <laughs> president. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, but after Donald Trump's become the president, I feel like everything is kind of fair game. Like, if this was... Five years ago, I would have said there's right. no way Oprah Winfrey is going to be the president. Right. It's At like, this point, it seems very realistic. It's like everything is possible now, yeah. right? Yeah. Like Dwayne Johnson could become president. Yeah. Ted Nugent could run. I mean, who can't be president, really? Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, it's like that South Park episode. It's like Hollywood is just, you know, the perfect storm of self-satisfaction. They love to look at themselves in the mirror and talk about how great they are. And this whole thing with Harvey Weinstein, you know, really exposed Hollywood for what it is and all the darkness inside it. I mean, Hollywood has been lecturing us as Americans for so long about morality and every other goddamn thing. And here it is, what's going on in their own house. And now that they've been exposed, they're like, oh, we're doing our housekeeping and this and that. Well, good for you guys. But meanwhile, more and more of you are going down and you're diming each other out like it's going out of style. So, I mean, I welcome any sort of house cleaning, and I hope that anybody who, you know, committed sexual harassment gets fired, and anyone who sexually assaulted a woman or, or a man, for that matter, uh, goes to prison. So that's that's a good thing. That's a positive development. But for these celebrities to kind of like, after the fact, it's like after you've been caught in the act, now all of a sudden you're like this activist, and yeah. you're, you're out there talking about it. Like, why, where were you a year ago? Now that it's safe for you to come out and talk about this, you're talking about it, you know? Uh, I wish they had as much balls as, you know, some of the people who talked to me about stuff like this article we just talked about, about the, uh, uh, I mean, how many others have I worked on? Like, like uh, the uh, Jonathan um, uh, Sartoro story in the 101st Airborne, the guy who was sexually assaulting his own privates, his own soldiers in uh, Afghanistan, I wish that, you know, these Hollywood celebrities, these icons we're all supposed to look up to, I wish they had as much courage as some of these young men and women who have come forward to talk about sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, or for that matter, even some of the young actresses in Hollywood who came forward, the first ones to come forward and start talking about Yeah, Harvey, Rose McGowan. Start talking about Harvey Weinstein. It wasn't until after the hard work had already been done I think it's easy for people like Oprah to come out and join the bandwagon. I just I would can't have been more beyond, you know, she gave a speech that people liked, and now it's Oprah 2020. And Well, that's just a Facebook hashtag, right? That's going to be replaced by something else in two days. I don't know, though. I mean, I feel like Donald Trump was a hashtag, and it mm -hmm. really happened. Um, you yeah. know, and people compared, I just think everything really is fair game now, because people will say, Oh, well, Ronald Reagan was an actor and he became the president, but Ronald Reagan became a successful governor. You know, this would even I remember um, when the presidential race was John Kerry versus Bush. That was the first uh, election I was able to vote in. It might have been yours, too. Right. I can't remember because um, we're about the same age. So that was my first one. I remember prior to. Um, well, may, I think maybe it was a push for him to run as an independent, but there was a big like. The, there was a big ad campaign on TV of amend the Constitution for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. You know? So yeah. as much as that sounded kind of crazy, at least Arnold Schwarzenegger was a had, governor. had been a governor 
uh, definitely was not a, a great governor in all aspects, if you read all about it. I mean, he definitely had a lot of roadblocks, a lot of things that went wrong. And if he hadn't knocked up the nanny, they'd probably still be talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? That's true. Um, but yeah, at least he had the experience of running a state. Right. Donald Trump literally went from nothing in terms of uh, political career to the president. So it's like, why can't Oprah Winfrey? If, if he did it, it's a, it's why a, not? It's a fair point. And I'm, I'm watching some of these commentators on Fox, and it's like we were talking about pretty blondes and all that. I won't say any names of who it was, but, like, I saw one girl in particular who I've met, and she was on Fox Business, and she's like, well, maybe she'd be a great president. I mean, she's she's a businesswoman, and that's become, like, the meme. that You're a business person. You will make a good president. It that's, is a completely yeah, yeah, yeah. different field. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that all the time, too, and I completely disagree that, yeah, being a good businessman or businesswoman – makes you a good politician or a good leader or a good president. That's total nonsense because the differences, the the profit incentives are different. Um, when you go into politics and you deal with these complicated issues, there are resources that are indivisible. One of the big differences is uh, in business is you can, and as Americans, we're great at this. American businessmen is trying to set up a deal so that it's a win-win-win and everyone takes away something. Everyone walks away from the deal happy. Um, when you get into politics, as you know, Jared Kushner is finding out there are some things that are indivisible, like Israel and Palestine. It's not so easy to just draw a fucking red line across territory and be like, okay, you have that, you have that, or, or you have all of that and you have nothing. Um, you know, politics in international politics and domestic politics are just so radically different than business. And um, I, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I know what to say that you know, Trump is proof that being a good businessman doesn't make you a good president but other people are gonna be like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about jack he's building yeah. a wall well this goes back up. to you not you know talking about things you're not necessarily a subject matter expert on but have an opinion well, on. but I, I mean i would just look at it and say what what has trump done since he's gotten in office um he got his tax reform bill passed that fucks me i'm gonna have to pay more in taxes thank you um everything else he failed to repeal obamacare this wall is nowhere in sight. I mean, what what has he actually done? And I mean, granted, he's like, what, one year in? But it seems like he's gotten very little done. I, I will leave it at that. Um, but with with that, for the first time on with us, Dan Crenshaw running for Congress in the 2nd District of Texas as a Republican, former SEAL Team 3, uh, 10-year combat vet, also uh, reading your bio, Master's in Public Administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So you've done more than just special operations, which is a lot in itself, of course. Um, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I, I'm a fan of, uh, of all the things you guys put out, so it's, it's an honor to be here. Awesome. Hey, well, the first thing I was going to ask you about before we get into like any real questions, I was just out of curiosity. Um, Drew Wallace, who runs all of our stuff for SoftRep TV, is the one who made the connection. So I was wondering how you go back with Drew. And then also uh, Jason Kenitzer, our um, head of brand, was like, I've met Dan. He's a solid guy. So hearing a lot of good things about you. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, they're great guys. Um, uh, Drew and I, how did we get connected? <laughs> I guess uh, oh, through, through another mutual friend at Oakley. Um, you know, we just hit it off real well. Um, you know, and, uh, despite his Ranger background, <laughs> and, uh, um, but you no know, great, great guy. And, um, 
and I'm glad to see he's doing well um, working with you all now. But uh, yeah, I was I talked to them a lot at Oakley, and they took a special interest in me and feeling sorry for me and giving me uh, sunglasses <laughs> when I needed them. Uh, you know, with my my one good eye, uh, it needs to be specially protected. It's pretty sensitive to the light, so they uh, they helped me out a lot with that. Hey, Dan, it's Shaq. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, uh, I guess a, a good way to start this uh, interview today is uh, I wanted to ask you, so what made you decide to run for Congress? I mean, you had this uh, pretty incredible background in the military and then going to Harvard. And then what was this just sort of like the natural next step for you? Uh, not, you know, not, not initially, but um, not something I hadn't thought of. You know, I, we, we, we had discussed it, me and my wife, um, in the past and, you know, how, because the real question is, how do you how do you make an impact? How do you continue sure. making an impact? Um, you know, my entire life I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. You know, really since like age twelve. You know, you read a book and uh, you're hooked, and you're hooked <laughs> to the adventure and the patriotism and uh, the elitism of it. And that's just what I wanted to do. And so when that's all sort of wrapping up and coming to an end, uh, what do you do with your life? And you know, I, I knew a couple of things. I knew that I really can't get up in the morning for anything that doesn't really giving me a sense of fulfillment. And um, the SEAL teams, I think, did that for me. And um, and I think they did that for me because of the, the, the intensity of it, the, um, the impact that, you, that you're having, and, you know, that dedication to public service and, and serving your country and the way that makes you feel um, and, and, and the good you see it does uh, for your country and how, and how critical it is. And... Um, I think there's a, there's a ton of ways to serve your country. And so I think the way I do it best, I, you know, it's, it's through leadership, through the leadership I learned in the teams and bringing that kind of credibility and passion and inspiration to Congress and, uh, you know, and showing people what leadership actually means. It's not just, it's not just authority. People didn't, or, you know, my, my guys didn't follow me through minefields and into dangerous scariest environments imaginable type places um unless they'd actually believed that you were the right guy for the job yeah you know yes you have some sort of authority over them but they're not following you because of the bars at your collar and um i think anybody in the military would agree with that and it shouldn't be really be any different uh for your elected representatives you should you should truly be able to say that you believe in them and that they've got your back and that's that's the kind of leadership i want to show um for the people of texas I was reading on your website about how, you know, you uh, describe how you lost one eye and, you know, went temporarily blind in the other eye, um, you know, when you were uh, caught in an IED strike. And I've interviewed other veterans about this, but I wanted to ask your take because this is always um, very interesting to hear about, you know, how people bounce back. And I noticed that you went on a, a couple more deployments after that injury. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the recovery process and how you kind of jumped back in the saddle. Of course. Um, yeah. So you know, I got hit, lost. I was blinded immediately, um, knocked over, didn't really lose consciousness, but I, I was, I was torn up pretty bad. Uh, one of our Afghan interpreters had stepped on an IED pressure plate right in front of me and, um, he was dismembered right away. And I took the blast, uh, cause I was only a couple of feet away and, and looking right at him. So, uh, I didn't, I was blind, but I, didn't, I don't think I quite realized I was blind in the sense that I figured it was just dirt in my eyes or or something along those lines. So there was a long period, which really never ended, by the way, (laughs) a period of self, of of self-deception where, 
I was I was never really blind. I mean, physically I was, but I really didn't think of it that way. Um, I was able to walk it off and get to the medevac helo, and um, they put me out right away. And I woke up about five days later, still blind, of course. Um, now completely missing my right eye because it had been been removed in uh, in surgery in Kandahar. And uh, so I woke up in Germany. And you know the, their message to me was essentially, you you might see again out of your left eye. It's not it's not looking so great. We've got a cataract, so we have to stabilize you and then get you to Bethesda, where we'll we'll actually do the operation. And again, that kind of self deception kicks in, where I really just didn't believe them. <laughs> you know, you didn't want um, to. I don't know. I it just didn't. It, it wasn't like a. There was there was really there was there was no pushing and pulling inside my brain. Like it was just like okay, you're saying there's a chance. I guess there's a chance. And, um, and, and that's just how I thought. And it, frankly, it was probably better for my mental health, but that's how I thought. And, um, but, but I was hallucinating constantly too, uh, cause I, like I said, I was blind, but still seeing what I, what I, where I had just been. So I was constantly seeing Afghanistan all over my hospital room, um, in dreams and then waking up from dreams and still seeing those hallucinations. It's a very weird, awful experience. Um, so we eventually get through that and, you know, of course, proving the doctors, um, proving their negativity wrong by, by, by actually recovering and actually eventually gaining full sight in my left eye, not perfect sight by any means. I mean, I, you know, I still have to wear a very specialized contact to see anything at all, but, um, we got through it and, you know, why, why keep going and, and, you know, not medically retired from the military right then and there. And I don't know, that just wasn't, that wasn't an option. You know, I, I think, <laughs> People ask me that a lot, and it's kind of a tough question because I never really wrestled with it. There was there was never a moment where I thought, "Oh, I, I mean, I should probably get out of the military now." Right, right. <laughs> that 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 conversation never occurred. Um, the only conversations that occurred were, "Which you know, can I go back into a platoon, or do I have to do other kind of deployments? Like, what kind of service can I continue right. doing?" Not really. Should I continue? It was just it was just never a conversation that I had. It was never something I wrestled with. So it's a hard question to answer. Um, uh, it's the best way to answer is like, you know, you're going to have to do better than that to keep me from continuing, uh, service and, and continue serving with my brothers. Uh, you're gonna have to do more than take away my sight. I think it's I think. great that they, that they let guys who have been injured stay in, you know, even if they, you know, I mean, sometimes they can requalify and become, you know, ground guys again, putting boots to asses. But even if that's not possible, you know, for those guys to stay around and, you know, work in some other capacity in their unit or in the military and um, kind of have that s- sense of brotherhood and, and leave the military on their, their own terms, I think it, it's good for the military. And I think it's good for them personally, too. It, it is. We invest a lot of time and money and training into our people, and we should be looking for ways to keep them. Frankly, I don't. I don't you know, I, I don't know if the Navy does a great job of that. I think the Army and Marine Corps do a little bit better because uh, I, I, I fought it. This is there's a lot of fighting on my part to, to stay in. And, they they want to medically discharge you. Yeah, it's it, they they don't because they don't because you know the Navy SEALs are only a very tiny part of the rest of the Navy. And so the rest, you know, when you go up to BUMED, they're not, they're not really accustomed to seeing kind of combat injuries right, and, right. and the waivers that you need in order to stay active and, and deployable. Right. Uh, so it's, it's it, that those, those conversations are harder to have. Whereas, you know, in the, in the army, I've seen it be, be a little bit easier, but um, it, it's something we sh- we should do. I mean, you know, and again, I did redeploy, um, 
but more in Intel related roles, uh, still, still in a way that I felt was, was impactful and fulfilling. So I'm very proud of that and happy to would have kept doing it. Um, but eventually we got to a point where, um, even, even that was a little bit too much for the, you know, the, the stricter rules and, 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 and kind of maintaining the medical standards that they wanted to. So it, it, it made sense to medically retire me in 2016. So when you got out, you went um, back to school. Could you talk a little bit about continuing your education as a, uh, as a SEAL veteran? Because, I mean, there's a lot of dudes out there, of course, who are leaving the military. I was one of them in uh, 2010 getting out and that process of going back to school. Of course. Um and you're, you're looking for that transition, right? And you're right. looking for a bridge into the civilian world because there really is no obvious way to do that. You know, so the, the first thing I really thought of is, okay, like what, what gets me up in the morning? Kind of like what I was talking about before. Well, things that get me up in the morning are, are service to the American people, really, serving something greater than myself. And I, and I felt that I got that out of the military. Um, you know, where else can I get that? You know, where else? Because I don't want a job. I want a new mission. And... You know, that, that's harder. It, it really limits your choices. <laughs> um, but uh, I went to the Kennedy School because of the Kennedy School of Government and because it's all about public service. And, and I was interested in policy, not just national security policy, you know, sort of my wheelhouse, but economic policy, healthcare policy, immigration issues. I mean, things that concern voters at a very low level, you know, at the local state level. Um, I, I getting more and more interested in politics. And so that was really the natural choice for me. Now, what I did with that degree, I wasn't 100% sure yet. I, I thought that uh, after you graduated from Harvard, they just handed you a job <laughs> and on a silver platter. And turns out it's not that way at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, but, I, but after graduating, and I was really looking for a way to serve again. You know, I, I was really only looking at either government jobs or or um, you know, jobs in, on, in Congress, something along those lines. Um, I worked with uh, Congressman Pete Sessions for a while, just to I really wanted to reconnect with Texas. That was my goal above all else. But um, I'm sure all veterans have really come across this. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, you know, a lot of people want to meet with you. They want to, they want to hear your story and tell you how great you are and how appreciative they are of your service. But they're still going to hire the guy or gal who'd been answering phones in, in that industry or whatever right, it is right. for the last couple of years, what you know, and they don't, they don't realize how quickly veterans can learn and adapt and overcome and then get back on their feet. What do you think of, you know, today, the, the situation in America? Well, not just today. It's always been like this, I think, to a large extent that the, our politicians are largely lawyers. And, you know, you're a guy who actually has real deal military experience and also uh, majored in public policy. I mean, that kind of brings a different background to the fold, doesn't it? It does. It's a, it's a necessary background. Um, I, I agree. There's so many lawyers in the, in the legislature. And um, right, because it's a you're lawmakers, so people assume that you should be a lawyer before you become a lawmaker, right, right. And, and it's just not that's just not true. But you know, having worked on the Hill, like I understand how these things have it. You're a policymaker. Yes, yes, you're writing laws, but you're not the one physically writing the laws. Your law degree doesn't help you in in this. Um, you know, unless you want to be on the Judiciary Committee or something like that, then those guys should probably be lawyers. But you know, it's, it's certainly not a requirement. Um, and actually a lot of people I'm running against in this primary are, are, are mainly businessmen, only a couple lawyers here and there. And it's too bad because I had all these lines about, are, you're sick of having lawyers <laughs> as your politicians and for me, but it turns out both my competition is lawyers. 
Uh, but uh, well, what do you, you yeah, know, Ian and I were having this conversation earlier, and I, I won't interject my opinion. I, I'd like to hear <laughs> your take on it. What do you think about the notion of businessmen running for office? I mean, of course, we hope that there's a, a diversity of American life that ends up representing us in public life. But there's this idea out there that if you're a good businessman, you're going to make a good politician or a, or a good public leader. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it should really be dependent on on the person as opposed to their necessarily their experiences. Um, so as I said, I'm running against a lot of businessmen and they are, they're, you know, they'll say things like, this is how I know how to fix the economy because I'm a businessman. Well, let me guess it's lower regulations and less taxes. I mean, these, these things aren't all that complex. <laughs> um, the, 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 poli- the policy prescriptions are out there. Um, you know, we, we differ on, whether you're on the right or the left on, on which policy prescription policy prescriptions you think are best for the economy. But, um, you're not running to be CEO of the second district. You're, you're running to lead people. <laughs> Leadership is not authority. Right. You know, and, and I, and I think sometimes when you manage an office, you might, you might get confused about the difference between being a leader and being a manager and what it truly means to have authority and influence. And, you know, like I was saying before, like you guys don't follow me into the heat of battle because of the bars in my car. They follow you because they believe in you and they trust you. And you need that kind of credibility in any leadership role. And especially when you're representing the American people, I think that's so important. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying all CEOs don't have that. I'm just saying it's certainly not a prerequisite. And, it, and even if you're talking economic policies, it's, it's not a prerequisite because, it, you know, the policy is different than managing your office and managing your business. Uh, I'm very pro-business. Don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm very happy to see entrepreneurs creating jobs. I mean, they're the drivers of our economy, especially small businesses. But policy is different. All right. Like it's, you know, and you have to study these things in a, in a different way, right? Like what sort of the more expensive policies? How is it, how is regulatory policy actually written and by what agencies and, and how do they go about it? What are the cost benefit analyses they do? Those are the questions that you have to answer. Not so much, uh, you know, you're managing your office as, as, as you would and, and, you know, and, and every quarter, you know, coming with, with different projections and, and, and profit goals, you know, all these things. It's, there's a lot of things that go into business. There's a lot of things that go into policy and there's some overlap, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, it depends on the person. It depends on their ability to lead and make a difference and influence. And, you know, again, we're all, me and my opponents will all probably agree on the policy prescriptions, right? We're all very conservative. Uh, what matters is who can get those things done and who can inspire more people to come to your side. That's influence. That's leadership. And uh, that I think I've learned a lot from uh from the SEAL teams. Well, how do you think you would go about that, considering the very divisive political atmosphere we're living in today? Wow. Yeah. I, mean, I know. I, it's I a mean, bit, it's a big question, but I mean, you'll be in the hot seat if you get elected, right? Right. Right. No, I mean, listen, you, you do it first by, by showing credibility for what you're talking about. Um, we, one of my big things is, is uh, speaking to the next generation, especially with respect to, as, as being a conservative, you know, you could imagine uh, most young people uh, vote, you know, or lean left. And um, that, that worries me because I do believe that we have uh, a lot of the right ideas. I do believe that our values are good ones. And I do believe that we, we truly have 
um, the best interests of the country in mind. And I'm not so sure we're convincing people of that. And that's maybe mm-hmm. because we're electing people to represent us as, as conservatives with, with, with just less credibility than they really need um, to be up there. So if you're, you know, you elect a businessman or a lawyer, so what? What is it about this person that, that, uh, that proves to you that they really care about the country and then they care about their constituents? Like, I'm not so sure. Right, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think that people look at my story and they know that truly oh, the only thing I care about is actually serving the American people. Um, and, and, and no matter what you do to me, whether you take my eye, like I'll, that's all I still want to do. Um, there, there's really not a whole lot you can do to get in my way. So if it comes, if you're looking for somebody to fight for your values, then you can, you can be damn sure that it's, it's going to be me and that I'm going to be pretty effective at it. Um, I'm also one of the few people who's actually worked in federal government and really knows the issues well. So we're talking about national security, intelligence related issues, defense, you name it. You truly need experience in these things to be effective. These, these are, these are, these are not things that you can just sort of research on your own, develop your talking points and figure out because it does require years and years of classified briefings and actual experience on the ground to understand. Um, I'm probably one of the few people in the race too, with a lot of pre-existing relationships on the Hill. Um, you know, I, I don't, I haven't, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with actual endorsements from sitting members of Congress. Uh, you need those relationships to get things done and people want to work with you when you have a proven track record of, of serving this country. Um, and even if they don't want to work with you, they at least want the, uh, you know, they publicly, I think they, they know that they need to, um, and I don't think that would be the case with my opponents. I don't think that they, I don't think they'll be able to inspire that kind of, uh, you know, you know, inspire that kind of uh, sense of cooperation and and get things done kind of attitude that I that I believe I can, and that I know I've done in the past, uh, working in the military and working across different federal agencies with State Department, intelligence community, um, you know, to get to get some major operations done. It's hard to talk about on a podcast, but <laughs> no, no, I understand. But I appreciate you kind of, you know, going at length on this. Um, it, it is one of the benefits, actually, of doing a podcast, and yeah. as opposed to television, is you know you can really articulate whatever it is you like to say. Um, I, I would like to shift over into um, national defense a little bit because I was reading, you know, your policy positions on your website, you know, to prepare for uh, this interview. And uh, you talk about ISIS on there, and you know we can see that ISIS is—I don't want to use the word defeated—but they've been crushed pretty good in Syria and Iraq. Um, they're nowhere near yep. where they were at, say, two years ago. Um, what do you see as far as being our national defense priorities in the future? I mean, I don't think either of us are so naive as to think that international jihad is going away. Um, what, what, how would you, what would your approach to counterterrorism be, you know, say going over the next five years? Yeah, no, you're, you're right to say it's not going away anytime soon. Um, it, it, it has been nice to see this president really unleash the generals, so to speak, um, on ISIS. And, you know, as you've probably seen, uh, me, me talking to my friends in the, in the soft community, there, there is an, an uplifting in morale and uh, the way they feel that they're they're treated, and the way that they feel the administration has their back, and um, I think it's really been effective. Now that doesn't mean the ideology is going away anytime soon. If anything, it's it's still very much alive. Um, they simply don't hold territory, and uh, 
you know, you, you, you fight that by really removing the conversation away from arbitrary timelines and arbitrary troop levels. You know, we have to get, we have, we have to have people in leadership positions who, who are just honest with the American voter and say, listen, if, if you want to defeat these things, you have to maintain a presence. You cannot have, right. um, power vacuums in, in, in states like Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen. You just can't, you know, and you, you, you cannot pretend that we can like an ostrich, like we stick our head in the sand and then and there's nothing going on out there. That's uh, just it's unrealistic. Just endless, endless deployments, no end in sight. Yeah. I mean, at least for the foreseeable future, there might be an end. I mean, but you know, American troops have been in South Korea and Germany and Japan since, you know, the Korean war and world war two. And these, these things turned out well. And I'm not saying those countries are really comparable to Iraq and Afghanistan, but, but we, we do have pretty good evidence, very, very good evidence of what happens when you do leave power vacuums. Uh, you get ISIS sure. and you get nine, you get nine 11. We, we know that already. Now we don't, that doesn't mean we need a hundred, 200,000 troops nation building, um, I, I think we've we've tried that experiment, and it's. It, I don't think the American people have the patience for it. But if um, we're not going to engage in nation building, then I mean, isn't that literally a, a you know, a, a sentence in a in a way for our troops that they have to stay and occupy a country like Afghanistan indefinitely because we're not willing to invest in the infrastructure and the capacity there? That's true. I'm not saying don't invest in it. I'm saying we we, we probably have to find the right balance. Um, and, and again, just because of the cost and because of the, the American voter is, is, is not as patient we would like. That goes back to what I was saying. No, we do have to be honest with the American voter. True, and say, listen, true. This, is, this is what's needed. All right? And you know, we, we, in the Obama years, I don't think we had very courageous leadership on that front, right? It was just do whatever the polling says. Um, I said it get us out of Iraq, whatever that means. And, well, what it meant was ISIS. That's what it meant. Right, and we ended up and, right uh, back we, there. We, we end up going right back. So yeah, you, you, I mean, you're correct to a degree. You do have to do some nation building, and, and frankly, you know, we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that, um, into Iraq, and we actually came away with what was looking to be a good product. But we, we, we you can't just leave it prematurely, and, and hope it'll last. Uh, we fought very hard, you know, through the years of 2006, 2007, to really turn that war around, and then, yeah, it was very sad to see us just. Just uh, let those gains uh, slide away. And um, Afghanistan is a different animal. It's, I think it's uh, a nation build. A country like Afghanistan is it's a very different conversation than Iraq. Yes. Uh, you know, you can, you, you can control the cities, the major cities in Afghanistan, but uh, there, is, there is zero evidence when you look at the history, going back to Alexander the Great, that anybody can control the countryside in that, in that place. And, or um, that the people even know, want a, or desire a state. There's, yeah, there's just it's just it's a very different situation than, than other places in the Middle East. Um, we just need to be aware of that. That doesn't mean we leave. It means we continue pressure on it um, so that we don't get another 9/11. So that we don't have elements of Al Qaeda or ISIS or whatever it is. Just having the room, the the space and the and the and the time to really plan operations. You know. And uh, I always want to say there's always an argument that, like, well, the more we do, the more they hate us, the more enemies we make. And, you know, to an extent, you know, we have to be smart about the way we operate. But at the same time, that that argument is 
it, it misunderstands how how the enemy thinks. Uh, I, I always ask people like, what is it we did to Osama bin Laden exactly? You know, was it was it all the help we gave him and the Mujahideen in the 1980s against the Soviets? Is that why he hates us because we helped him so much? Or is it was it us defending his home country of Saudi Arabia from Saddam Hussein? I mean, what what is it? What do we do to this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, those are you cannot you, you cannot win. <laughs> Uh, to the the other things I, I saw when I was uh, reading about it, shifting away from counterterrorism or counterinsurgency, is uh, you mentioned Russia and China, and you know we've seen both of these countries involved in fairly aggressive territory expansions in the recent years in the South China Sea yeah. and in Ukraine. Um, what did you, what would your position be in regards to these two countries? I mean, both seem pretty aggressive, expansionist. Um, and basically outfoxing us, perhaps, in, in different manners. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, of course. They're, you're dealing with sort of two different, still two different entities. They're kind of, they're, they're operating in similar ways, but um, you know, one is really a rising power and one is a frustrated <laughs> declining power. Yes. Right. And, that, <laughs> and, and um, so we'll talk about China, you know, Yes, they're 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 they're, they're going to continue to test our will and see how far they can get away with, and it's our job to keep trying to shift them back into being a responsible actor. Like, listen, it's in both of our benefit with your economy growing and our economy growing. That's all great, but stop acting like you're a developing country um, taking the short end of the stick. It's just not true anymore, and and I think that that's a big part of Donald Trump's message. Um, you know, China taking advantage of us. He's right because they they like to act like they're that they're like they're the underdog and it's time to it's time to really push them back into being responsible actors that we can work with. And, uh, this North Korean issue will be a, a huge test of that. And, uh, I'd like to see, I'd like to think that it's going well because I think the Chinese realize that the president is pretty serious about it. Um, well, I mean, hasn't China already backed it? off and made it clear that they're not going to be our ally against North Korea? Um, it, I mean, the Chinese need North Korea there in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. Um, don't you think it's a little they're, naive to think they're going to ally no, with no. us? No, I'm not saying they're going to back us into an absolute overthrow of the regime of North Korea, but I think what they will start doing is using their actual influence to, to bring the North Korean regime back from the brink um, because they realize that the U.S. is not playing around and that we would actually be – we would have a credible threat Um and, and, and I think that's part of the president's strategy to, to show that he is serious and to, to bring the Chinese to the table, not bring to the Chinese as, as an ally in an invasion against North Korea. That's not at all what I think is in the realm of the possible. Right, right. No, I understand that. Um, but, I, but I do think they might be more inclined to use their influence with the North Koreans to, uh, to push towards denuclearization eventually. I mean, that's a long ways off, I believe. But um, if, it's even, if it's even possible at all. But uh, I, I think we hopefully will see more of that. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of other choices. You know, it, it, nobody nobody has good options with North right. Korea. Uh, that 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 is for sure. It's either the Chinese do their part and and really bring them back, and uh, or, or or the president continues this path right now and, and it needs to be credible. And I think that's what he's doing. Hey, I was going to uh, say, Dan, you sound very knowledgeable on, on all this. And I also didn't know about, you know, your, your prior experience in politics. The, the one thing I wonder about is I feel like everybody who runs for office goes in there with noble intentions to help the American people. 
And then, you know, when they get there, there's so much influence of super PACs and lobbyists and even unions. And it's like, what's your plan once you get in there to make sure that you could put forth an agenda, represent, represent your constituents um, and your own values without, you know, being tied to so many groups, which happens to, I feel like, almost anybody who goes to Washington. It certainly does. Um, you know, luckily, or really unluckily, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of those big groups funding me. So I don't know about to hold anybody. But, but if, you get, if you get the Republican <laughs> nomina- nomination, I would think that you'll start to see the influence of those groups, right? Oh, of course. Um, you know, they're all over Washington. They come to the office all the time. You know, it, these groups aren't all bad. Let's remember they, they they provide kind of a legislative subsidy to the members. Okay, you can't possibly understand every single issue to the amount of detail that you need to. So, um, my my basic rule would be this: anytime somebody comes in and 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 wants a policy put forth, whether I agree with it or not, especially if I agree with it um, right off the bat, it's just I I will always demand those counter arguments on it because I've seen how these lobbyists work. I've seen how the you know the, the paperwork they bring in front of you. They're not lying, you know, but the, but they might cherry pick some data. They might only provide one side of the argument. Always demand both sides of the argument because I might I might know ahead of time that I I'm completely support what they want um, just because of my own values and what my constituents want. But I will also demand that there's counter arguments to that one, so I can sound credible. I think too many politicians go up there a lot, and if they really do only have their one or two talking points on one side of the story. It's not hard to have the other side that you can actually fight for these effectively. And the only way you fight effectively is if you know the other side. Um, so that's one way, but I mean, how do you, how do you keep them at bay? I think in the end, they can't vote for you. Okay. So you know, now they can attack you. They can put out funding, whatever it is. But if you're, if you're in touch with your constituents and if you've shown them ahead of time that you care and that you're courageous enough to explain why you did certain things and, and why you didn't do other things, um, you know, that's leadership, that's accountability. If you show those things, if you demonstrate that, you know, they'll let you back. And and you can and, and, and that's the real power is your people, your people that actually give you the gift of following you, uh, not so much the, the lobbyists and, and, and other special interests that are out there. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of uh, I was about to look up where he represents, you know, Justin Amash, though, right? Uh I believe he's. It. Yeah, I, remind I'd me. have to. I'd have to look. Are you, up his are you actual, trying to catch Dan? In no, no, an, no not, not at all. You're trying to get I'm, him with an Aleppo I'm, moment. I, well, I, I think he's just you know one congressman somewhere. But no, I, I actually seem. I genu- generally like his positions. And the thing that I've noticed on his Facebook that I like that I don't see any other politicians doing. Like every bill that he votes on, he'll put on Facebook, and he'll be like, "This is why. This is how I voted." And this is why I voted this way, like no matter what the bill is. And I wish more politicians did that. And what what you're saying reminds me of that. And as you're responding yeah. to that, I'm going to look up who Justin Amash is. So uh, Ian, you're, like, you're so sneaky sometimes. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it right now. It, came, it, it honestly came to my head as he was speaking just because we were talking about. Yeah. So he's third district of um, Michigan. But I just I, I like that idea. I wish more congressmen would do that because I think there's so many bills we, you know, we don't generally look at how our congressman votes on every single bill that comes across their desk. But if you like your congressman on Facebook, which is a pretty easy thing to do, it's cool to be able to see like, hey, this is why I voted this way. And it keeps you accountable to the people. There's some transparency. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's it's mutually beneficial. It's not just good for the people. It's good for you because I mean, you've got to, communication is everything, and it's so easy to communicate with lots of people these days with social media and, and, and other things. So it it just makes sense, you know. Just be would honest. you would you possibly do that if you become the congressman? Oh, I, oh, I think so. I think I I do actually like that. Yeah, I think idea it's a quite great a bit. Idea. We're already we've already got a we're very active on social media as it is and. Um, I mean, you have to have ways to talk to your constituents. I mean, look at the president <laughs> He's on Twitter all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that's his method. Um, I probably wouldn't use exactly that method, but <laughs> I would, uh, but, but speaking to people and, and also just getting out there in person, I think getting out there in person is big too. Uh, you know, in, in my district, there's a lot of very active Republican clubs, you know, just go talk to them, just go talk to them, just get the word out. Let them, let them vent at you. Um, if they didn't like how you voted here and there and, and explain yourself, just be courageous enough to explain yourself and be honest and, and go from there. And I was going to say with us being, you know, really an international podcast, cause the internet is everywhere and we have listeners in, you know, like the UK and Australia that I see, um, you know, I'm not as familiar with just the second district of, uh, of Texas, but I was looking at the basics and, the current congressman there, of course, is Republican Ted Poe, but he's not seeking re-election in 2018. I believe the guy's been there, you would know better than me, of like nearly 15 years, right? Right, right. I'm a, I'd have to look at exactly yeah, it's, it's, when it's, he started. It's approximately, it's from what I've seen, it's, it's between 10 and 15 years, though, from what I saw. And yeah. I would think that, you know, you were saying all these people that you're running against, that it's like a highly coveted position to be the Republican nominee, because I would assume... Yeah district is probably going to go red again and uh that you're not up against a uh incumbent it, it's really anyone's game it certainly is it's a it's a small field only nine people in it <laughs> that's a lot Congress. yeah geez for one yeah. congressional seat yeah it's 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 an intense race um a lot is, of it, is it like that in the democrat owner. primary i would assume not right no, I, I, am not actually, tr- I think there's a few, I think there's a few in the, in the Democrat primary, but you were right in that it's, it's a very Republican district. There's, there's very little chance of this going blue. I don't think the Democrats are really going to focus their efforts on this one. Sure. Um, they're going to look at other districts in Texas. Uh, this isn't one of them. Um, it's still a diverse district. You know, it's, it's, it's not old, all old white people voting. It's 30% Hispanic. It's, um, it's only 37% white. Um, it does. It does cover large swaths of Houston. Uh, it does snake around from all the way from southwest Houston to all the way up to where I live in Spring, and then all the way east to the, you know, all the way to the edge of Harris County. Um, so it's quite large and and windy. And actually, I'm going to run the entire thing on February 20th to the 24th. Nice. Uh, about about 100 miles over the course of five days. And that's something I'm. I like. I'm not a runner. You know. <laughs> I think seals in the older days were uh, big triathlete type guys. That, that's like the the younger generation of seals. We just like to pick up heavy objects, and that's what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, so this will this is this is gonna hurt. But a uh, big big reason we're doing it is to draw attention to the neighborhoods that are still affected by Hurricane Harvey mm. um, and still need reconstruction. I'm excited to do it. Working with some local groups and you know, bring attention to both the campaign, but also some of the issues that we need to work on here. Well, one thing I'd assume that you have to your advantage running against eight people, like I was just thinking about it is 
you'd have to be a pretty like big asshole to run a negative campaign against this guy because <laughs> you'd be like, yeah. you know, lost your eye in an IED blast in Afghanistan. You, you know, because, Na- Dan, because Dan could beat you up. F- former Navy <laughs> SEAL, but I mean, like, what are you going to say? This this man hates America. <laughs> like, I, I, right. I don't know what you'd have going for you in that case. Oh yeah, and yeah, we'll we'll see. I, I the, the people I'm running against, at least the ones they've hired, have, have a history of dirty campaigning. So we'll see how this goes. Now they are going to try and say that, you know, I haven't lived there in a long time. I mean, that's true. Um, it is, it's, you know, I, I grew up in Katy, just west of Houston. My dad was in the energy industry. We moved around a lot. Um, as a result of that, you know, I speak Spanish because I was in South America for a little while. And then I was in the military my, uh, my entire career. So I've been gone, but I've got pretty good excuses for it. Um, you know, we're six generations of lineage here in Texas, proud of it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be from anywhere else. I, I absolutely love Texas, greatest nation in the country. <laughs> Dan, before uh, we wrap this up, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the uh, local issues because I know I've kind of quizzed you about these like broad national and international issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned Houston, and I, I remember reading on your website about you know the recent flooding you had had down there. If you want to speak a little bit towards you know the stuff that actually affects your district um, that you'd like to address, right? Well, I mean, Hurricane Harvey is very much on our minds um we don't want it's again big reason i'm doing that 100 mile run is i I don't want people to forget uh there's there's we were just touring some houses just yesterday and uh near where i grew up and it was actually right where i was volunteering with team rubicon um back in september team rubicon great organization they're still out here and uh there's just there's just so much work to be done there's just a lot of houses still down to the studs. Um, we can't get contractors here because there's just not enough of them. I don't think the rest of the country realizes that if a, or at least, uh, at least contractors in the rest of the country, if you want jobs, they're in Houston. Um, please come down here. We're having a lot of trouble. Uh, just, just getting labor. That's it. We just need labor, um, you know, and money, but there's, I think there's been a lot of donations. We need labor badly. Uh, a lot of people are waiting months and months to get contractors into their house to, to get some of the work done. So a lot of churches are having to uh, just train people up, and, and, and churches and other nonprofits just training people up on, on, on you know how to put in flooring and drywall, just just to get some of these things done. So that's a huge issue. Um, another really big local issue is border security. You know, border security times a thousand. Uh, Texans are really tired of being on the front lines of this and, and not having the, the backing from the federal government, obviously that's changed. And, uh, I will be a huge proponent of uh, supporting the president and his push for better border security. Just finally, just putting the issue to rest. And, and once you put that issue to rest, we can really fix the immigration system, um, in, in, in ways that I think benefit everybody. Um, you know, whether it's, whether it's moving forward on fixing DACA, having honest conversations about what DACA actually is, and, uh, and just fixing the immigration system to, towards a more merit-based system, getting the right people in this country. We're not anti-immigrant, never have been. I grew up in Latin America, like, you know, for many years. Like, I, I understand it very well. And, um, you know, it's, it's a big issue for us in Texas is, is getting these things sorted out. Well, there's a ton of people who listen to the podcast who are in Texas, and then even more who probably just want to donate to a special operations vet who's running. Uh, you know, we get so many emails that say, we need more vets running for office, yep. and more special operations guys. Well, you know, here's a guy doing it. So it's, and, and has a chance, honestly, because I, there's been other people who have 
uh, been on the podcast before who have run and honestly had very little chance. I mean, like Kristen Beck ran against some incumbent as a Democrat. Like, I didn't think that was going to happen and it didn't. I mean, it's great that, you know, Kristen ran, but like you, you sound like my you friend, actually uh, could run, that my, could win this. My friend and uh, he's written for us before, um, uh, Faddis. He's a former CIA officer. He ran uh, in Maryland, and fortunately, he didn't get elected. Yeah, so we'd love to see more people in office. And then, you know, from running for Congress and hopefully winning, it, it could just go up from there. I mean, look at Ryan Zinke, who's now in the administration. Uh, so it's Crenshaw for Congress.com on Twitter, Dan Crenshaw TX, and then on Instagram, Crenshaw for Congress. Uh, and I'm assuming people could donate right through the website, right? CrenshawForCongress.com. Absolutely. That's the best way to donate, and we need the help. And we've got, we've got every advantage you can think of in this race except funding. I'm going up against completely self-funded millionaires. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't think that's what our, I don't think that's what our country needs. I, I don't think it's what Texas needs. So I, I truly, every little bit helps. Please, CrenshawForCongress.com. That's awesome. So, yeah, any of those people who ever get in touch with us and say there's not enough, you know, vets running for office, here's your chance to put your money where your mouth is. There you go. Well, thank you so much for that, guys. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dan. Good luck with the election, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on in the future. I hope so. Absolutely. No, I'm always I'm always open to, to soft rep podcasts. Um, I love you guys. <laughs> thanks, Dan. Appreciate thanks, Dan. it. All right. Talk to you soon, Bye. man. Um, yeah, great having Dan on. I could tell he, he just really knows his stuff. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of guys who just run in general, right. Who, uh, don't have the background that he does. And he seems like he's like working his way up and, and is just knowledgeable on a whole lot of things from what yeah. you were talking about with him. Yeah, no, he, he clearly is educated on, you know, the, the subject matter and, you know, we see people running for office all the time who don't have a clue. And I, I don't mean, I don't agree with every single thing Dan said, but I th- think he is uh, clearly educated. Um, he's not an ignorant person, and he's obviously studied these issues in depth. So, I, you know, I appreciate that. Yeah, I agree, man. Um, so wrapping things up here, I was thinking throat punch of the week. Right before I was prepping for the show, I saw Joe Arpaio, your favorite guy trending on Twitter. Who was pardoned, by the way. Yeah, who was pardoned. And I was like, why is he running? Why is he uh, trending on Twitter? And it's he's officially running for Senate, it looks like, in Arizona for Jeff Flake's seat. Um, for those who don't know, because it's been a couple of years at this point, do you want to go back into your history Ian, with you Joe? Br- you bring it up all the time. <laughs> well, there's people, there's new people listening every show, and you haven't been here in four months. So Arpeo, uh, he once referred to me as a renowned anti-government author. Um, I don't really know why, who or who on his staff <laughs> told him to say that, but um, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, but yeah, Sheriff Joe, he's a piece of work. So. When, yeah, when I was thinking of Throat Punch of the Week, there's a lot of, like, nut jobs out there running for political offices. So there's him, and then there's also Jan Morgan, who people have seen on the news, and, and she's most known for having a gun range in Arkansas oh, and yeah. making it a Muslim-free zone. And uh, I've even seen articles about people, like, that were almost, you know, just darker skin that she heavily questioned before allowing them to shoot at their range. Who sounds were, like a who nice, not Muslims. She who sounds were, like a nice woman, Ian. You know, have her over for dinner. Yeah. So, uh, 
Jan Morgan running for governor in Arkansas. So I didn't even really discuss this with you before we did the podcast, but I don't know. It's throat like, it's throat like, punch worthy in your opinion? Yeah, they're both throat punch worthy. I mean, it, it seems like racism is like the new, like cheap heat. Like, you, you know, you throw that out there and like people will, you know, some of the worst elements in society will love you for it. The thing is, running like a Muslim-free gun range in Arkansas, how many Muslims are there even in Arkansas? How many, how many Muslims has this woman ever met in yeah. her entire life? Pro- it reminds me of like people in Arkansas or, or just, let's just, it doesn't have to be Arkansas. Or anywhere, you know, let's say in middle America, people who hate Jews. Yeah. How many Jews have you met in your life? You know, like, I, really? I remember learning about David Duke's campaign when he ran for Congress. And uh, like a huge part of his platform was going against Jewish people and black people. And I think there was someone on his campaign that were like, you know, David, you should focus more on the black people because there's no Jews like in our <laughs> district. So it's like, how can you really blame we, them for we, these local problems? We don't have any uh, any people we can blame for our problems. Uh, we don't have any Jews here to blame. So let's focus on the uh, other minorities. Wow. Yeah, it's. I think it's just kind of a sad state of affairs, man. I, it's and pathetic, I think really. That it. It uh it appeals to people who just their their lives are not going the way that they wanted to, so they need to have someone to shift the blame to. And and just the xenophobia works for them. Yeah. yeah, and and I think that seems to be a big part of Sheriff Joe's appeal. I mean, a lot of people do like him, but yeah. Well, you see these sheriffs where where sheriffs are an elected position, and they cut these populist figures, you know, and they go and say they'll. We're going to get tough. And that's why you see those. I, I laugh at them all the time. You know those videos that the sheriffs make where it's like they have all their guys wearing like balaclavas and they have the dude in the ghillie suit and they're like, listen, MS-13, we're going to come and get you. We're coming to your house. We're going to arrest you. Not on my county. It's not going to happen. It's like the cheesiest, stupidest thing. It's like, why are all these cops playing dress up wearing multi-cam with like AR-15s? What's the point? Like, who do they think they're scaring? But it's because they're in a, an elected position. Like it's not re- it's not for criminals. It's for voters. It and does like, probably there's, there's I, like scared white people who watch that and they're like, oh, we need to elect him because he's going to crack down on the gangs. I, I would think it does. Uh, I don't know. It could be effective on some level, right? Because where where we live, it's the whole like sanctuary city thing, and they don't do anything about illegal immigration. Where you know, if you live probably where like Dan Crenshaw is running for in Texas, I would assume. That they probably crack down on that a little harder. I could tell you right now, I live in Port Washington, New York, Long Island. The house next to me is like a, over a dozen illegal immigrants in a house. And I'm positive. You know, a ton of them don't speak English. Um, and I could assure you they're not going to do anything about that type of thing. If that same situation was in another state, yeah, they'd, they'd be, you know, reporting that. Would they? I mean, yeah, would, would, I they, think it, would they spare the police manpower? I mean, I, I think I, if you lived near, honestly, in like Arizona under like a Sheriff Joe Arpaio area, they would they would look into that type of thing. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I would like to see some kind of like actual like data on on these things. But this is true. Anyway, great having Dan Crenshaw on. Um, I really do hope he does well. And the guys who have met him from the site seem to speak really highly of him just as a person. And that makes sense that there's the Oakley connection because Jason Kanitzer and yeah. Drew Wallace both worked at Oakley prior. Yeah. No, Dan seems like a cool guy. Um, so let's see uh, let's see where he goes with his campaign. Sure, man. Any, any other stuff you're working on? I mean, you just put out, put out this article, so any other pieces? In the, uh, uh, just wrap this up. I have another one, another story in mind, um, actually kind of a spinoff from my work on the TV show. Um, I want to write a little bit about Serbia, um, kind of like a, a retrospective on it. Um, 
so I think I'll probably start working on that. And uh, I got to start writing more on uh, on my book. <laughs> I actually have to write that damn thing. Get it out uh, there. Yeah, I got like 20,000 words and I need to crank that thing out. And th- this will be up tomorrow from when I'm speaking. But tonight uh, is the second episode of your show, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, tonight is, it's Tuesday night, so it'll be on tonight at 10 on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, so if you're listening on Wednesday, I'm sure you could check it out on the app, yeah. on demand. Um, hope it continues to grow, man. Are you, are you still seeing more, um, people checking you out who aren't familiar with software? Yeah, or? and I'm starting to get the emails from people that are like, Jack, that is not how you build a death ray. <laughs> like, you're doing it all wrong, bro. I'm like, okay, man, thank you. Well, that's no. an interesting thing, too, because when you got put on this show, I think there was some response of like, what does uh, you know, Tesla have to do with special forces or army rangers? And they were wondering why you were a part of a show like this. Because I, my background. In, well, I think they liked my military background. That's something they can kind of use to sell the, the show and, and sell me as a character on the show. But um, my role on the show is to be an investigator. So they tap into my background working as a journalist. I dig it, man. And, uh, yeah, if you haven't check, checked it out yet, uh, it's Tesla's Death Ray. Checking it out on the app on Discovery. And, uh, yeah, that's it. As always, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoftRep Radio. Uh, you could email us, softrep.radio at softrep.com. And then as we're getting out of here, uh, as a reminder for all of those who are listening for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. SoftRep TV's premier show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV, that's at softreptv.us and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. It's only $4.99 a month. We were just talking about Drew Wallace, and he's put, putting out some kick-ass content on there for all of you to check out. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company to start getting your gear to subscribe Visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. And I should point out there, for team room members of the site, also um, premium Crate Club members, our team room party is happening. Uh, I know it's later than usual that we've announced it, but January 22nd in Las Vegas, 6 p.m., the location will be announced if you're a member and all that. And I know there's like a sign-up on the website, RSVP, if you haven't seen that yet. Um, the Odyssean put it up. So, uh, yeah, check that out. It's on softrep.com. If you're a team room member, we hope to see you there. Uh, you know, if you're in the area, even if you're not in Las Vegas and you can make the drive out, it's going to be a great time. I'll be there. Uh, you're going to be there, right, Jack? Yeah, I'll be there. Uh, the Odyssean will be there, maybe with the uh, Lucha Libre mask on. 
Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think maybe BK, right? Uh, James Powell, bunch of guys. Yeah, James will be there. Who else? Scott Whitner, Steve from uh, yep. Special Operations. Mark Miller, he'll be there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it should be a good group of guys. A whole bunch of guys, and I always love seeing the people who check out the website. And I'm used to seeing kind of the East Coast people. Uh, you know, when we have these events at Olooney's, but it's it's cool to see the West Coast people if you're out there for SHOT Show uh, or even if you're not out there for SHOT Show and you can make the drive out or you can take the flight, uh, it's definitely worth it. You know, I think it's open bar. Uh, yeah, so check it out. And and if you haven't seen the stuff on SoftRep, uh, you should be getting an email. But if you are a team member or premium Craig Club member, you can email us, uh, softrep.radio at softrep.com, and I'll shoot you over the link. Um, you know, you have to be a member, which we check and all that, but yeah, that's really it, man. Um, next episode, we're going to have James Powell in studio and then I'm excited for next week. Andrew Wilkow will be here. I want to hear his take on Oprah running, running for our president. I'm sure he'll have a lot to say on that. Andrew will, yeah, he'll go ballistic. (laughs) It's, it's weird, man. I'm, I'm not. For since May, I've been working here full time, so I don't get like Andrew's daily. I have, and I haven't seen Andrew in a while. Yeah, every now and again I do tune in and, and hear what he's up to, but I don't get his daily anger about <laughs> what's going on in the world. And I, and he's also going to be promoting. He's back on TV, so he's, he's oh really? Yeah, he's going to be on Conservative Review TV. That's why I figured we'd have him on. Cool. Um, which has a really cool lineup. Dan Bongino's on there too, who's been All on right. the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Andrew was kind of joking around on Twitter about a uh, CRTV like bench press who could. Uh, bench the most if they were to have a contest because he was like between me, Steven Crowder, and Dan Mongino. He's like, I think I would place third because Crowder's pretty jacked too, and Mongino is like huge. So, is he really? Well, not not huge, but he's he's like a yeah, he's a pretty ripped dude. Um, I mean, and also being Secret Service, I'd assume it's like a benefit to be in really good shape. So the last I would love to get him back on. So the last time we were, we were on with him, he gets very political, and I do like hearing about politics, but I would. I would like to hear more about his experience as being former Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. Because I think that's got to be an interesting job. Um, yeah, speaking of which, I don't want, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was another guy, not, um, not Dan, who was at one of Will Cow's events, who was former Secret Service. Um, you know, he was just there as an event. He's at the event. He's a friend of Andrew's and people at the site or people at, uh, from his radio show and our site. And your friend... Um, why am I forgetting his last name? Army Ranger Matt Sanders. Yeah, Matt. He he went up to him and like he didn't want to. He was a former Secret Service, but he wasn't like announcing this to everybody. And I remember he ran up to him and he was like, "Dude, you guarded Bill Clinton. You were Secret Service for Bill Clinton." And I could tell this guy was just like, "Dude, I'm, I'm not in the mood for this right now." <laughs> it was pretty funny. Cool. All right. So unless uh, there's anything else. Uh, as always, thanks for checking this out. Yeah, we'll do it again next week, right? No, we'll on do Thursday. it on Thursday. On Thursday that's yeah. the beauty of doing uh, twice a week. So you'll see this up again on uh, on Friday, and then I also do the Power of Thought with Brandon Webb. We'll have um, legendary uh, music engineer uh, John King in studio. I'm psyched for that. Sweet, cool man. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softrepradio. 
And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.